This is a download from the Wireless Theatre Company. Life at Death's Door, Episode 2, by Anne Teato and Steve Spence. Funerals. We will all have one. Mind you, my husband might come a little earlier than he expected if he doesn't sort out the spare bedroom pretty soon. Although 610,000 people die in the UK every year, death is no longer something that is part of British modern-day living. It is taboo, rarely prepared for, usually ignored, and mostly happening out of sight. Bit like my sex life, really. British grief is something that one is expected to bear, but not to share. Why do we turn our backs on our dead family and friends by asking funeral directors to deal with them instead? 93% of us use the first one we come across and we don't feel it's right to shop around. Then again, we are burying a loved one, not getting a quote for a new bathroom suite. What drives us to wear black, have a wooden coffin and to give our loved ones what we consider to be a dignified funeral at staggering expense? Before Queen Victoria, we used to bury our own. Now it is almost the exclusive domain of the funeral industry and with an average funeral costing £3,500, perhaps it's time we look for alternatives. How do we know what sort of service to hold when 81% of us have not written down our funeral preferences? Less than 10% of people go regularly to a place of worship and less than 5% are declared atheists, so 85% of us sit in the middle, and our families need help in creating the right proportion of religion and meaning in our funeral services. In this episode, we look at some of the incredible ways we can commemorate our dead and find out how we can conduct our own unique funeral celebrations to better reflect the lives our loved ones have lived. never really thought about it. I'm going to live forever. Maybe not everyone wearing black, because that's yeah. also a bit depressing. It's like nice if everyone wears bright colours. Some nice food. My funeral? No. I'm young and there's no point. Whether it makes other people happy, I guess, doesn't it? It makes them feel more comfortable. I want good music, I know that. But yeah, upbeat not music. Yeah. It should commemorate the person. It should be inclusive. It doesn't have to be elaborate. I'm an organ donor and I really want my organs to be used for someone that can make use of them since I'm not going to be using them anymore. The rest of me, I'd quite like to be burned, become as small of a footprint as possible. I live for two reasons. One, I was born. Two, I haven't died yet. <laughs> if you were planning your funeral, what would be important to you? I guess a personal touch, really. I'm, I'm not religious, but I come from a Muslim background, and I guess assisted two of those funerals hands-on where you kind of there's a ritual of having to cleanse the body where you actually physically wash the body and it's actually quite a nice way of saying goodbye because you physically are in contact with the, with the body it's usually the closest people yeah it's it's usually the the nearest family members of the same sex that do it there is a tradition that everyone fills in the grave as opposed to a machine everyone will muck in and fill it in together the whole congregation which is also it's very personal in that sense for me, it's always about celebrating somebody's life, young or old. I mean, my, my daughter sadly died last year, so it's something I've had a personal experience of. But it was a celebration of her life that we, that we did. She was a food scientist. She wanted to have a green funeral, so we researched a green funeral last year. 
I mean, she was dying of cancer, so we knew it was coming. The thing I would say about funerals, for people who've suffered bereavement, the few days afterwards, it's mechanical. It just goes completely in one year out and out the other. I mean, the things about what type of coffin you have and, and all that kind of stuff, it, it just goes... You know, what you're thinking about is the person's passed away. So for people who are very, you know, very emotionally involved, I sometimes think that the funeral service, a lot of it is, it's almost mechanical. It's generally at the wake or something where they've got maybe like a slideshow of photos of their life and, and stuff like that, rather than, I mean, the funeral is about their death, isn't it? And then going into the, whatever they're going to, whatever you believe. The, the wake's more about their, their life they have lived, which is more important, arguably. Britain is undoubtedly now a post-Christian society. Half of all Christians have stopped going to church on a Sunday, probably because they can't get past the mountain of Sunday papers blocking the front door. When I wake up on a Sunday morning, the first thing I do is throw open the window and climb in. The British Humanist Association have been providing completely secular funeral ceremonies for well over 30 years. They are usually the first port of call for those who feel uncomfortable with the clergy and a conventional religious service. Trevor Moore, a funeral celebrant who works with the British Humanist Association, told us what humanists believe. Well, the key is in the first part of that, which is human. It really concentrates on this life uh, that we lead now, rather than being driven by any belief that there's some kind of judgment awaiting us in, in an afterlife. It's used as a term really as, as relative to religious faiths, but in a way wouldn't need to exist if religion didn't exist. What I mean by that is that it's an approach to life. So what you're saying is we've only got this one shot at it. Let's make it the best we possibly can for the good of all. We don't believe in the supernatural. We've got to cope with the consequences of what nature throws at us down here on this planet. And that's why humanists will typically be concerned about things like poverty and the environment, as well as more abstract things like oppression and discrimination. Many celebrants work part-time as a celebrant, as I do, have other, other work as well. As you can imagine, uh, running a funeral ceremony involves a lot of skills. First of all, we will typically meet the family for a couple of hours to really try and understand about the person. might also involve follow-up calls to people who can't be at the family visit. So that needs real people skills. Um, you deal with people from all walks of life, um, the highly educated down to the passionately grieving who can't perhaps articulate what they want to say, and you help them to do that at the ceremony. Um, but also you've then got to prepare a script which involves writing skills, particularly if the family or friends don't feel comfortable with speaking on the day. They may just have a fear of speaking in front of large numbers of people, or they may just be overcome on the day. So it's important to act as a mouthpiece, trying to use their words and present um, a fitting tribute to their loved one. And then the other thing is, is the ceremony itself. You've got to be quite detached uh, in front of other people who are often getting very emotional. You have to learn to distance yourself because they're really relying on you to get them through a difficult watershed. As I understand it, in the last six or seven years, the number of humanist ceremonies has increased by about 50% over that time frame. I think uh, it's partly because people are becoming aware of it as an option. I think 
all of us probably think that funerals have to have some specific ritual to them, almost like marriages and baptisms, which isn't the case at all. And I think it's down to education that people need to become aware that you don't, there's, there's no ritual, you don't have to have a ceremony at all. There is a charge. Um, we regard ourselves as competitive with, with anyone else. Um, typically, in the London area, I would guess you're going to pay between £150 and, say, £200. But if you bear in mind that, speaking personally, an average ceremony, I reckon, probably is about eight hours' work, um, you can see that you're not going to become a rich person. I think uh, the Church of England actually recently issued um, a statement about increasing the fees that they charge. Bear in mind that a, a minister is going to have an underlying salary so they can perhaps afford to make it cheaper, although I think now it's very comparable, in fact. And um, in the scheme of things, when you bear in mind that your average funeral can cost several thousand pounds, um, I would say it was value for money. Almost every time I go to a family they say, oh, we didn't realize we could have this. And I think if you bear in mind that, say I do 50 ceremonies a year, maybe a, few, a little fewer than that, and let's assume there's on average 100 people at that. That's a lot of people who are experiencing a humanist ceremony. And if there are 300 plus celebrants around the country doing likewise, over time, people will become aware of it as an option. Indeed, traditionally, the first person that a bereaved family will contact is a funeral director. So the person to whom they will go for a celebrant will be dictated or di uh, directed by the funeral director. And without wishing to be unfair, I think there are funeral directors who have their own beliefs who aren't naturally going to try and push them in the direction of a humanist or even explain what that might be. First of all, I would encourage everybody to leave a letter, possibly with the will, but probably not because the will often doesn't get discovered until some days after death. Let, let the family know you've written down what you would like. Better still, discuss with them what you would like. And that might include the fact that you want a humanist ceremony. Well, the best way for anyone who's looking for a humanist funeral celebrant is to go onto the British Humanist Association website where there is a ceremonies tab and you can search according to postcode. And indeed, there's a map with little humanist H's representing uh, celebrants around the country. But I wouldn't feel too hidebound by getting the one who's necessarily exactly the nearest to you. As I was saying earlier, look at the web pages, maybe ring two or three of them to get comfortable with the person you're going to choose for what, is, after all, is a very important event. Thanks, Trevor. So, what type of coffin do we buy? How do we choose one? And where do we buy them? Some funeral directors have showrooms. You can walk around and admire the coffins. But at my funeral home, we have a catalogue because we can't afford the storage space for all those coffins. We've got a special deal with some of the manufacturers because they won't sell to the public. Oh, no. Punters have to buy their coffins through us funeral directors, and I only stock the coffins I want to sell. Some coffin manufacturers do sell direct to the public, <laughs> swines, but mostly the public have to come to us. And of course, we get a huge markup on whatever coffin they buy. I have to stress, a lot of funeral directors don't work the way we do. <laughs> Fools. They're too honest for their own good. So this is our catalogue. OK, so I don't put the coffins in order of price, cheapest to most expensive. I know that makes the price comparisons too easy. No, no, there's a method, you see. 
our objective is to sell a coffin just above the average price. So we show them two coffins just above the average price, which we want the punter to buy, but they think, oh, no, 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 they're too expensive. Fine. So then we show them two low-quality coffins in the very lowest price range so that the punter is all sad, you know, thinking about their loved one. And the psychology is they don't want to go that low because it looks like a bit of a shitty coffin, to be honest. So then we show him two coffins in the highest price range, which are way out of his range. The punter will always go for something not too expensive, but something that he thinks is not poor quality either. You've got him. Coffin sold just above the average price works every time. It's all a bit pointless anyway, isn't it? They're all well-made, even the low-priced ones, and it doesn't really matter. That coffin is only going to get burnt or buried. But as long as I make a healthy profit, I don't really care what they buy. Sounds heartless, but death, it's a business. What sort of coffin do we want? Willow, wicker, bamboo, or in my case, reinforced? although sometimes the sun shines through the wicker coffin and you can see the body inside. Traditional wood, cardboard, fibreglass, one already decorated with licorice all sorts or World War II bombers, one in the shape of a guitar, ballet shoe, a builder's skip or a canal boat, or possibly you want to buy a fancy casket with a padded interior. What's the difference between a coffin and a casket? A coffin is wider at the shoulders than it is at the head or foot. A casket is rectangular in shape with straight sides between head and foot. Keep up. A good funeral is one where we should feel in control of what is happening. The perceived chicanery of the funeral profession is unfortunate. You must use a funeral director like me, Luke. You must dress in black. How else will you provide a dignified and fitting tribute to your deceased? A funeral doesn't have to conform to old traditions? Ha ha ha! If only you knew the power of the dark side. What other businesses do you know of who can survive on just one client a week? Join me. It is your destiny, Luke. No! Never! Coffin pillows! Coffin pillows! Don't forget your coffin pillows! Put one under the neck of your deceased. Stuffed with lavender, sweet hay and herbs. Smells lovely. Pink satin frilled or white cotton covered. Come on, express the love in your heart with a coffin pillow. A cardboard coffin ought to be the cheapest you can get, you might think. But actually, they cost pretty much what you'd pay for a coffin made from MDF. Some funeral directors shun them, completely needlessly and some crematoria have been known to resist cremating cardboard coffins. There were problems in the past because earlier versions would not go on the rollers at the crematorium and when the oven was open, the cardboard would ignite before it even went inside the oven, causing the tendons of the corpses to burn and the bodies to sit up. I have to stress though, it's not like that now. Due to modern day multi-lead construction technique, a cardboard coffin is extremely strong, easily carrying up to 20 stone in weight. They cremate with 90% lower carbon emissions than a standard chipboard coffin. And for burial, they are 100% biodegradable. When Vicky died, we decorated her coffin. Yeah, usually it's only the family who get to read out the sympathy cards, um, but it was this giant piece of artwork and anyone who came to the funeral parlour or who came early to the church to see her coffin could, could read it. Um, not all of our friends or family could attend the funeral, 
but they all sent us a memento for us to attach to their on their behalf um and it sort of made them present at the funeral mm. despite being absent and we all sat on the floor of the chapel of rest surrounded by like pens and paint glitter scissors glue we had a really good time we laughed so much and we cried sometimes <laughs> Yeah, and we took Vicky into the church an hour and a half before the ceremony so that people could see her coffin. And we supplied pens, glue, sellotape for last minute attachments and graffiti. <laughs> right up to about 30 seconds before the service, people were still milling around the coffin looking for, for a space to write something or to attach a last minute memento. Yeah, um, no one was afraid to get close to it, mm. even knowing Vicky was inside. It was an incredibly therapeutic and healing experience, mm -hmm. especially for her little cousins who were just children. Um, instead of that coffin representing fear, it represented love, happy memories, joy and um, creativity. We transformed it, hadn't we? Yeah. From something linked to death to something linked with life. Who does Tintin ring when Snowy's had his last adventure? <coughs> Who's there when Lassie finally doesn't come home? Who does Mrs. Slocum turn to when her pussy goes through that big cat flap in the sky? Best friend funerals. That's who. At best friend funerals, we aim to give your loving companion the send-off they deserve. With a range of products from pet caskets and coffins to grave markers and personalised pet memorials made from granite, marble or slate. We know that your pets are not only your best friends, but part of your family. So when Fido finally catches that last thrown stick of destiny, <laughs> ensure he has a dignified passing with Best Friend Funerals. To find out more, visit www.bestfriendfunerals.co.uk. In Ghana, the coffins are designed to reflect a significant aspect of the deceased life. They are usually very colourful, eye-catching and definitely one of a kind. So someone buried in a fish might be a fisherman or someone in power, like a, a king or ruler, might have a leopard motif. Or perhaps a person who enjoyed Coca-Cola in life may well be buried in a Coca-Cola bottle coffin. Well, for me, <laughs> I love expensive cars, so my coffin will be made to look exactly like a Mercedes-Benz. The coffins here are beautifully made and families spend no expense in making sure that they are made to the highest quality. It is not unusual for the body to lie in the morgue for up to three weeks until it's finished. Ghanaians do not recognize death. We say no to death, we, we don't accept it. We believe that funerals are a time for celebration as well as mourning. Uh, some people don't have a funeral. If you haven't married and you haven't had a proper life, they just bury you, that's it. Or if you are a married woman and your husband has just died, just before the body is put in the coffin to be escorted to the church, the widow must remove her wedding ring and leave it with her husband. It signifies to the world she is able, after a period of mourning, to marry again. At the funeral, you queue up to make a donation. You get a receipt and it is recorded in a book and then we read the donator's name and amount of the donation over the loudspeaker. A funeral, you see, can be very expensive, maybe five to 20,000 pounds. In Ghana, the most significant cost you're going to incur in your life is not going to be your wedding, it's going to be your funeral. Funeral parties are promoted weeks in advance with online advertisements. They say things like, save this day in your calendar as I celebrate the life of my mother. Or they advertise with flyers. The flyer often looks like a theatre programme with photos of grieving family and friends known as the chief mourners. 
as well as credits for the MC and the technical staff. People go around the city looking for funeral posters, see where the funeral is and go for the food. They take black bins and fill them up for their hungry families at home. But if you do not prepare, well, there will be a disgrace. If you find yourself without any weekend plans, you phone your friends and ask if there are any funerals. But if you're Ghanaian, you go to a funeral, you maybe see uh, 10 or 12 people you know, and, and they'll introduce you to somebody. And before you know it, you know everybody. A well-attending funeral carries great social prestige. The bigger the party, the better. Keeping a child is good does not earn you as much status as organizing a mega funeral. I didn't want to bury Edith in a coffin. No, she wouldn't have liked that. She loved the landscape and the natural world, you know. She was having a natural burial in the woods, so... Well, I took her there in a shroud that was shaped like a leaf. There were four layers of very strong wool felt, and there was a decorative top leaf to it. Well, it had a beautiful design. It was, it was cream in colour, and it had all these different coloured leaves, all made of felt, all sewn on the top. And you can take that layer off if you want at the graveside, you know, and keep it. And under that, there was a cream wool cover which was fastened all along the edge with these wooden toggles made from hazel wood. And inside of that was Edith, all snugly wrapped in a soft inner cocoon. And that was tied to a frame with the six carrying handles, you know. It was like wrapping her in warm blankets. It was lovely and cosy. It's much nicer than a hard coffin. My name is Brian Blessed. I was born in 1936. And I, I had to leave school early because my father was injured in the coal mines. And so the only job that was going was making coffins. So I became a coffin maker for about three years, between 14 years of age and 18. Became very proficient at it. And it was very primitive. This was a kind of uh, 1946, 47, 48. I made little coffins for babies sometimes, very sad. A very primitive morgue, which didn't work properly. Uh, and, and, and I used to kind of sand all, all, all the wood, cut the wood, uh, cut at the shoulders, sand it all, polish it to great efficiency, put the robes inside with cotton wool, but we were so poor uh, as a business that we used to, I used to put sawdust in and things like that. Uh, and I always had four or five different bodies and I'd have them in the morgue and the morgue would collapse. I'd get the electrician in so the bodies didn't smell. <coughs> I always made the coffins too small, saving wood. And I had to squash the bodies into the coffin. And Mr. Philipson, my boss, caught me one day with me pressing them in with my feet. What are you doing, Brian, lad? I said, well, they can't feel it, they're dead. And I had to push their bodies inside the coffins. Anyway, I got fed up with this criticism. And the richest man in Yorkshire died. And so I made his coffin, we got it. And I made it eight feet long. And at the church service, people looking at the coffin said, it looks as though he's taken his bloody money with him. But it was kind of cheerful work, very Dickensian, uh, but I, I stopped it because of the shock of my life. You never saw a car. I mean, we all had little bicycles, rally bicycles. And my friend Ken Parry was a brilliant uh, pursuit cyclist, the best in Yorkshire. He's going to be Olympic champion. And uh, they said, oh, we've got a body in the morgue, Brian. Go and make the coffin. So I went in the morgue, and there was my best friend. There was... There he was, in a barry, and his eyes had lost all their glimmer, you know, and, and I wanted to make him look good. 
I made the best coffin ever seen. I polished it, I put the handles on, it was a brilliant coffin. I settled him in with lots of love. I washed him and washed him and washed him in carbolic soap, cleaned him and cleaned him and made him look as, as handsome as possible for his mum and dad just to see him for the last time. And I was just in tears and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. And I, I put him in the coffin and I carried the coffin myself and laid it down in the hole and covered him up. And here I am now at 76 with a tremendous kind of life and career, but been to Mount Everest and God knows what. Now I'm going to go into space. And Barry died at 13, 14 years of age. Oh dear. Sad story. Hello and welcome to Hong Kong News. Hundreds of people have been arrested for stripping at a private funeral. Government officials have been outraged and have set up a funeral misdeeds hotline to try to prevent the popularity of this practice. We spoke to one of the relatives of the deceased. We asked the strippers to come here today. If we have five strippers, it entices people to attend the funeral. The more people attend our funeral, the more the dead person is honoured. So, if I have this right, Mr... Uh... Nobo, Nobo the Clown, Signore. Signore Nobo, you're a funeral director for the clown community. That's correct. It's called Died Laughing, and we do a bespoke undertaking for the global family of coloristes. Uh, coloristes, which is like a posh name for the clowns. And we do it posh, all our staff wear the baggy suits and the big shoes, in black, of course. We do the comedy hearse, where the doors fall off and the car tip up and the coffin fall out of the back, as I'm rolling in the aisles. We do the comedy floral arrangements, as squirt the water. What do... is the market for this service? Is it big? Oh, it's huge. Global. There are thousands of practicing clowns in the UK alone, and they all want to go out to be special, you know, like a clown should. With tears, yes, but the tears of a laughter. Mm. So, what deal are you looking for, Signore Noble? A 2.5 million pounds for a 10% stake. <laughs> that much for just 10%? And I'll throw in a spinning a bow tie. How about that? You're some sort of clown? Of course. Fear of premature burial peaked during the cholera epidemics in 18th and 19th century Europe, leading to the invention of the safety coffin. The common element was a mechanism for allowing the dead to communicate with people above ground. Many designs included ropes, which, when pulled, would ring a bell. One inventor showed off his device by burying himself alive in it and having an assistant feed him sausages and soup through the feeding tube. What are you doing? I hate vichyssoises. Sorry. Most models had design flaws. For example, the models that required ropes to be tied directly to the arms and legs so that the alarm was raised upon any sign of movement of the deceased would all have been triggered by the natural movements of the limbs that occur as the body putrefies and bloats. Safety coffins are still available today and include an emergency alarm, two-way microphone speaker, torch, oxygen tank, heartbeat sensor, and heart stimulator. You're not happy, are you? Well, being buried six feet under is not exactly my idea of a fun Friday night. Uh, you were the one moaning we were drifting apart that we needed a bit more jiggy-jiggy. I meant in my bed, not a bloody coffin. Well, we're here now. 
naked and intimate with a gorgeous bird. Christ, is Gwyneth Paltrow in here as well? Sod off. Oh, if she were. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's better. Oh, <laughs> not there. There? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank God Ben and Katie can't see us. Um, they can. There's a night vision camera in here. You what? It's all being projected onto a wall up on the surface. Bloody Nora, that's me right off. Yeah, I can tell. Hi, I'm Eddie Damsch, and I'm the fun taker. I'll give you and your family a really fun burial. No more of the glum faces. Away with the tears. For just 75 euros, you can enter your loved one five foot down in a very own private garden. The coffin is linked by webcam to a screen, so you can watch your loved one enjoying being dead. And there's also a panic button, just in case your doctor was a bit premature with his diagnosis. Yes, I've covered everything. So give me a call on 77908656477527752 or go to eddiedams.co.nl. Eddie Dams, I do a damn funny funeral. <laughs> I love you, Dad. I love you too, son. <laughs> okay. We have a newcomer here today with us. Say hello to Thomas. Hello, hello Thomas. Thomas. So, would you like to say your name? And what brings you here today? Um, hi, everyone. Uh, I I'm Thomas. Uh, sometimes I think I see dead people or, or ghosts or, or, or spirits. I get this uh, terrible shaking. I, I hate being buried in the sand on the beach. I hate being pushed down in a crowd. I've got taphophobia, which is a fear of being buried alive or the fear of cemeteries. I have thanatophobia, which is the fear of death itself or, or fear of being dead or, or dying. And I suffer from pneumatophobia, which is the fear of spirits. I also have spectrophobia, which is a fear of mirrors and of my own reflection. And it has led me to a fear of, of, of ghosts. So, that's coffins. Let's move on to graves. In 1961, every cemetery in the UK had a barn owl. Now, everything is neat and tidy, grasses are chemically sprayed, and owls and wildlife have all but disappeared. There is a vast difference in the cost of grave space across the UK, ranging from just £100 to a staggering £3,500. Yet 75% of the public never visit family graves. For some people, visiting the local cemetery or churchyard to care for the grave of a loved one can be an extremely difficult thing to do due to age, illness, family commitments or distance. Unless you're in a soap opera, of course, where your loved ones will probably be buried under the patio. There are, however, companies who, for a few pounds a month, will visit and tend your designated grave on a regular basis perhaps on an anniversary or birthday. They will lay fresh flowers or wash the headstone for you. How does the grave get dug in the first place? Years ago, you could get anyone to dig a grave, but it's gone way beyond that. It's very technical now. 
I went on a week-long residential course to learn how to shore up graves, use a JCB and all the different machinery. Uh, there were grave diggers from all over the country there. Some of are your stereotypical flat cap 60-year-old smoking roll-ups, but most of us are just family men and women, aren't we? Yeah. There are a few younger guys too. It usually takes two or three people to dig a grave, doesn't it? Mm. If you use machines from start to finish, it can take about an hour. In the winter, we tend to dig a grave by hand as it mm. keeps us fitter. But in the summer, we'll lift off the turf and cut out the grave like a template, then use machines because they'll go through the harder. Occasionally, we've got a coffin that is larger than the size we're given, so we have to make the grave larger at the last minute. Um, that's why we're always on hand during the funeral. It can be awkward, but the family and the undertakers know what's happening. And the coffin is just kept to one side for a second or two. And it doesn't take us long to chop a back wall to fit. No, no. Most families are quite appreciative of what we do, actually. And mm. they'll even have a laugh with you about it. In the winter, it can be quite hazardous. Often the grave can flood with two or three feet of water. Oh, tell me about it. We had a mm. funeral at our place and there were two pumps working constantly in the grave. But it was slowly filling up. Must have been about two feet of water in there. And the family were going mental. They were so upset seeing this coffin being lowered into the water. I mean, normally it's not a problem, as most families will understand it. But this one, it turns out that the deceased had died by accidental drowning. <sighs> so obviously the last thing they wanted to see was the coffin being lowered down into water. But in the end, the funeral was postponed and I copped a lot of the blame. But it wasn't my fault, you know. Sometimes a sidewall collapses in as we're digging. That can be a right mess. Or the headstone falls in. Or the grave digger. <laughs> Say, like, if you're digging in an already occupied grave, that's called a reopener. And it's popular with married people who like to be buried together but don't always die together. But you have to dig it by hand because you can't drive a JCB into the middle of a cemetery. <laughs> so you stand on the lid of the coffin and sometimes will your feet go through. You hear a crunch. That's what happened to me three times now. Weren't you stuck in a grave once? Oh, yeah. I forgot to put the ladder in and I was digging away and I just got stuck. My workmates knew I was in there, but they just left me. <laughs> oh, yeah, we just left him and went and watched the rugby. <laughs> Sometimes we come face to face with bodies. At an Asian funeral last month, we had to take the lid off the coffin because relatives had put money for the cleric in the coffin. We had to take the lid off so they could get the money out. Oh, yeah, and people like to be buried with jewellery or mobile phones. They text their loved ones, don't they? Yeah, and the phone beeps in the coffin. I don't really tend to tell people what I do anymore. I just tell them I'm a gardener. To be continued.